Let me invite you, if you have the word of Christ, uh, to open with me to the book of Psalms. In particular, Psalm chapter 16, where we're going to pick up in our fourth week. I think it's the fourth week, if I'm not mistaken, in our series through the Psalms this summer. And while you're turning there, let me um, um, just take a minute to express uh, my heart and how honored I am to be able to worship with you all through Word tonight. I'm grateful to see your faces. I see a number of new members. For those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting, I'm, I'm Hal. I'm one of the lay elders, and I know I speak on behalf of all the lay elders this summer that, that we're open to um, helping you and serving you in any way we can, because certainly um, y'all are a body of faith that uh, certainly serves us and loves us, and we, we greatly appreciate that. Uh, I'm also particularly honored tonight to be looking into Psalm chapter 16. In fact, it's so good, the reason we're only having one service is actually to preach this, it takes about two hours. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. In all seriousness, when you think about um, the Psalms, every, every jot and tittle, every worded, that God has preserved for, for us through history is uniquely glorious, special, important in its own right. Psalm 16 is, is a very unique psalm for a number of reasons, and I'm not going to go into all of them. Uh, some of them I'll touch on. Before we get started, i just kind of give you an idea of how important it is and how prophetic it is of the coming Messiah, our Savior, that... Jesus references it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, pretty good preacher, references it. Peter, on the day he preached what was probably um, the most important sermon he preached at the day of Pentecost, this was the passage he used to preach. So to say that I'm even um, worthy to mention the psalm would, would be an overstatement. And so while I'm joking about going into two services, um, I am excited about digging into this with you. And because of the importance of it, I want us to take just a minute to, I know we've prayed multiple times, but I want to pray one more time and just ask God to open our eyes and give us ears to hear. We might see him and love him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As our brothers and sisters are rising to start their week, I pray that you would fuel them with a heart and zeal for your glory, that they would make your name known among the nations. And as your son gets ready to set here, that you would be pleased to hear your name honored and proclaimed. Lord, I don't need to tell you of my inadequacy to speak on your behalf or in this word. None of us are worthy, so we thank you for Jesus and his blood. And we draw near and boldly right now to your throne of grace, and we ask for help to see and to hear. But not just to see and to hear, but God, to be changed tonight, to be encouraged 
to see the glory of Jesus in a new and spectacular way that results in being transformed more into his likeness. And Father, that you would allow me to decrease, that you might increase, and that all glory would be given to Jesus and to none other, and that all of our joy and fellowship would be rooted in our love for him and the grace we've received through him. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right, so follow along with me. It's only 11 verses. Um, As you can tell, I talk slow, so it may take a minute. So even though it's 11 verses, we'll get there. Hang with me. Psalm chapter 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are my Lord, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent, excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Amen. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And how true is it that in your presence there is fullness of joy. And if you are one who underlines in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline these last seven words. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. By no means am I a history buff. Uh, If you were to come up to me and ask me about a particular historical event and the date and timeline, I would likely not know. I could count on one hand the number of historical events that I'm probably privy to share about off the top of my head. But I do know that 245 years ago today that there was a document signed called the Declaration of Independence. Um, And there were five gentlemen who signed that on behalf of our Congress, and the document was drafted by Thomas Jefferson, and the second paragraph of the first article contains this phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are to include life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. I think most of you probably could have quoted that or at least parts of it as we were going through it. We learned it in kindergarten or first grade. As I mentioned, Thomas Jefferson drafted this 
But then it was John Locke who actually inspired what those inalienable rights would be that would be included. The pursuit of happiness in particular. And he wrote a dissertation as to why it was included. And in that, he said, the government's power was limited to ensure such God-given rights were, and here's the word he used, preserved. In other words, our country is founded on the nation that your right to pursue happiness is preserved to not be interfered by our, our government. It's not the sermon, so just hang tight. Now, before I go any further, let me preface by saying I am grateful to live in a country whose founding documents acknowledge the creator of the universe. And I'm grateful that leaders attempted to put in language that would preserve such rights to pursue happiness. However, no government, not even one as great as the United States of America, has the ability to preserve us from the reality of the tragedies and the trials and the tribulations of this world that inhibit us from often experiencing temporary happiness. In fact, they lead to sadness. What our hearts really long for is a greater authority, one that has the power to preserve us amidst trials of this life by providing lasting joy. And for that, we would need to look to a much greater authority than human government. And we have good news because that's what brings us tonight to Psalm chapter 16. In this psalm, we see there is one seated at the right hand of God, the King of kings, the very word of God. And in him are pleasures forevermore. And this king is very interested and the citizens of his kingdom experiencing great joy and pleasure. But not just in a temporary matter. He wants them to experience it in an everlasting matter. So much so that he was willing to die for it, to mature, and then come up out of the grave to preserve those pleasures forevermore. In other words, true joy is only found in God. And that's important for us to grasp, and I'm not saying this about Grace Fellowship, but in our generation of Christianity, there is a danger to only give a very surface-level piece of the gospel. We talk about how, yes, Jesus came and died for my sins, and by grace through faith I have accepted salvation. He has saved me. When I die, I'll be going to heaven. Not an untrue statement, but the reality and the joy of the gospel the loving creator of the universe looked down upon hopelessly sinful men and in love chose to send his son to bear our sins on the cross so that through faith we could have his righteousness and he can have house sin. And through his resurrection, we are justified. In other words, not guilty. And he reconciles us to God. In other words, the greatest gift of the gospel, and there are many, more than we realize, but none is greater than this, the fact that we get God and his presence that we lost in the garden through sin. And what we're going to see tonight is a picture and a beautiful picture. And 
I know I'm opening it up in a sense of a heavy heart on this. It's not heavy. I'm actually elated on the inside. You just can't tell. There's this beginning piece, right? We understand and we're grateful for salvation by grace through faith. We long for that day when we'll see him face to face. But what about in the middle? What about the tragedies that took place in the lives of family members this week? What about the trials that you're carrying and walking through right now? How does God preserve this goal of us enjoying his presence, the reconciliation of God through the gospel? How can that be possible amidst a world fallen and sin? Well, because with God, all things are possible. And what we're going to see tonight, here's the theme of everything before we get going. And I think you have this in your handout if, if you're there. If not, I'm sorry. But if you've got it, you can follow along. Feel free to fill in the fill in blanks, but you don't have to. But the theme is this. God can preserve his people from earthly trials by providing them joy in his eternal presence. Or maybe a more specific, maybe applicable way of saying it would be God's word preserves us through earthly trials by providing us joy in his eternal presence. God's word preserves us even in the midst of trials, not preserving the pursuit of happiness. We're talking about preserving joy amidst sorrow. And that tonight is what we're going to see And this prophetic psalm, we're going to look at four ways that David mentions it, three which are somewhat related to him, all of which are related to Christ. So here we go. Hang tight. Number one, God's word preserves us through weakness by providing refuge in his presence. So God's word preserves us through weakness by providing refuge in his presence. So verses one through three, look back with me. It starts off, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now notice how David starts to sum off, preserve me. I'm not giving you a commentary here on this, this verse. There is no other psalm that you will find but from David or from any of the psalm writers that starts off, preserve me. This is it. You'll see a lot of different ways that David and the other psalmists start off, such as, Lord, answer me when I call. Rebuke me not in your anger. Or as we recently heard, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. But only one time will you find the introduction to be, preserve me, O God. And we aren't even told the circumstance that's leading David to call out to God for preservation, but we are given the reason here. And you're like, are we? I don't see it. The reality is, David, the king of the United Kingdom at this time, which would have been the most powerful entity on the face of the earth, has found himself in a place where he realizes his Sufficiency in and of himself is no longer able to handle all the weight and the worries and the troubles that are surrounding his life, regardless of what those are. In other words, he knows he's not capable. He's hit a place 
of weakness, insufficiency. I know none of us are familiar with that, but David had it. I'm very familiar with it. And he said, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. So the question we have to say, is there refuge for such people in such situations? Is there sustaining power that can provide joy in God's presence for such situations? Our world doesn't look at weakness in situations like this admirably. Our culture honors the self-sufficient, not the God-dependent. But you find yourself in this situation and it leads you to seek refuge in God, it can be one of the greatest blessings of your life. Let me give you an analogy that I love um, about a man by the name of Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. Um, I don't have a son, but if I did, Thomas Obadiah Chisholm would be a would rank high on the, the names. And most of you probably don't know who he is unless you're part of the worship team. He lived a life of a Relative, average, below average, worldly recognition. As a young man in his young 20s, the only real talent or gift he had was, was writing, so he started writing for the local newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky. He was 26 years old. He was attending a church service just like this. And um, by God's grace, his eyes were opened. And he heard the word preached. And the word regenerated his heart by God's spirit. And God saved him. And it was shortly thereafter that he started meeting with the pastor of the church. He said, something's going on here. God's really moving in my heart and life and really just saying something to me. I'm, not, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't even know what's going on. And they wrestle with it. It's normal for you to be excited and elated after God saves you. That's normal. He's like, no, there's more to it than that. I feel the need to tell people about God, but I, I'm not a good speaker, and I'm only an average writer according to the local paper. And the pastor said, well, how about you resign from that? Come on staff here at church. Start writing our communications speaking some in small groups, however God leads you, and let's just see what God does. So he did that faithfully for a little over a year until abruptly he encountered chronic illness that debilitated him and he was unable to sustain the work in the ministry. Not knowing what to do because he didn't know which days he'd be able to work and which he wouldn't based on his illness, so he had to go to work for himself as an insurance salesman broker, which he did for 18 years so that he could work on good days and on bad days not, earned what he could to care for himself, ended up having to retire just before 50 because it became so debilitating, his illness, and he was put into a Methodist home care for adults where he lived out the remaining 21 years of his life being cared for every day. In his autobiography, he writes about how he would sometimes only have 
the strength to be awake two to three, four hours a day. But during that time, he would pour into God's word and whatever God showed him, whatever mercies were met with him on that day, he would write them down. And he started documenting every one of them every day. Whatever, If it was an hour he was awake, if it was a good day and he was awake six or seven hours, he documented it all. Nobody knew he was writing all this down. Year after year, as his illness got worse, he continued to document more and more about how God had become his refuge and had been a faithful God to him day after day after day. Until he died, no one knew. And then after his death, they're cleaning out his room and they found out over 1,200 pieces of literature. By the way, 800 of which since then have been published in some shape or form, and some are still being published today. One we've seen here at Grace Fellowship all the time. Let me read you my favorite verse from it. On a day, I can just imagine him saying, God, you're my refuge, I'm weak. He writes, pardon for sin and a peace that's everlasting. Thine own dear presence to cheer and guide, strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine. He's in the home where he cared for the adult. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Is there refuge? For God's people, when they find themselves no longer able to be sufficient in themselves, you better believe it. They find that refuge in his presence as they open his word, and they rejoice as they cry out, as David said here, Lord, I have no good apart from you. In other words, I have no righteousness apart from you. Anything that happens here, if you don't do something, Father, if you don't show up, there's nothing good that's going to happen. Where does this type of faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the... Come on, we got too many beasts and students. Uh, there we go, okay. He's a stronghold. Provided everything needed every day to bring glory to God's name for everything that he had ordained for that particular day. And it leads to rejoicing. You have this in your notes from Psalm chapter 5, verse 11. It says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. I mean, does David not express this in verse 3? He says, when I first read this and studying, I was like, well, Lord, why did you even include that in, the, in this? Now it makes perfect sense. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In other words, what he's saying is it's not just this joy of experiencing refuge in God's presence, but it is praising God for that refuge and then joining in with others who have experienced that, i.e. refugees right here who have experienced. Have you ever, this is a side note, not even a part of the sermon. Dangerous to get away from in your manuscript, but I'm going to do it. But have you ever been singing here on a Sunday? And we're singing a song or a hymn inspired by God's Word. And God brings back to your heart and mind a time when He provided refuge for you. And you're swelling up, and all of a sudden you're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And you just carried away as you look around with your brothers and sisters, and you're saying, All my delight is right here. 
Charles Spurgeon said, the believer may be beset with illnesses and uncertainties about tomorrow, but let them seek refuge in God and watch as he transform their sickbed into a place of worship. Before we move on to number two, I'm keenly aware of the reality that there are many in this room possibly. I know there are some, but there may be many who are surrounded by circumstances that you know you can't handle navigate in your own strength. Very well could be among the greatest blessings in your life if you respond like David and you said, I have no good apart from you, God. I'm done with myself. I'm only trusting in you. God's word preserves us through weakness by providing refuge in his presence. Number two, God preserves us through sorrows to enjoy satisfaction in his presence. Verses four through six, the sorrows, notice the plural, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So plural sorrows multiplied. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David said, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, we all are tempted, I think, at times when we're on a spiritual mountaintop, for lack of better analogy, when our hearts are filled with the zeal for the glory of God, we would probably echo with David, I will not go after other gods. You're... You alone are my God, Father. Jesus is my Lord, and I will follow him. That's a different situation than what we're dealing with here. I said God preserves us through sorrows. It's not when we're on those mountaintops that we need the joy and the blessing of God's presence to satisfy us. It's when sorrows are rolling like sea billows in your life. And there is no seeming end to them. Everywhere you turn, it feels like one sorrow after another. It feels like even God is just against you in life. Y'all listen close, because this is so prevalent in the world. Let's let it not be prevalent in the church. The root of dissatisfaction in these moments is the fact that our heart has a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. But in that moment, you'll be tempted to do anything just to relieve that sorrow for a minute. Another job. Another relationship. A material possession. One of two things happens, either you don't attain that, or if you attain it, you find that it doesn't satisfy. The job has its own new set of stresses and problems. The old relationship troubles reappear, because guess what relationship? You're, you're part of the problem. That material possession gets worn, throw it in the corner of the garage, you don't even use it anymore. The problem with this type of response to sorrows in our life isn't that these things don't satisfy 
at the root of it, the real problem is that we even look to these things to be satisfied. When satisfaction can only be found in Jesus or through those things which Jesus has been pleased to give us. And this is what God is saying through David in this psalm, particularly in these three verses, when he says statements such as, the Lord is my chosen portion, and I have a beautiful inheritance. A beautiful inheritance. So, so David was an Israelite. He was the youngest son of, of many sons in a family. I mean, his inheritance wouldn't have been much from a material perspective. He would have inherited some of the land of his father. He was the king. So inheritance does include land here amongst Israel. However, he's not primarily talking about real estate. In the old covenant, the land of Israel was where God had chosen to manifest his presence amongst his people. So when he says, the lines have fallen in good places for me, He's saying, God is my inheritance. And at this time, he was preserved amidst sorrows from pursuing false idols by experiencing deep, lasting, and true satisfaction in the presence of God. And there's a word of warning for us here, too, because it goes on later in his life. He encounters some of these sorrows upon sorrows, and he doesn't look to the presence of God for satisfaction. But here's the application for us here tonight as Christians. If you love the Word of God, you've got to love this. As a Christian, our inheritance in the new covenant, we are now the spiritual place where God manifests his presence. The reason we call Jesus Emmanuel at Christmas is God with us. He's come to dwell with us. After Peter preaches using this very same verse in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes and fills and dwells with his people. As the author in Hebrews says, and you have this in your notes, and I want us to see this. I want me to see this. This has been a um, source of real encouragement for me. Is why I put it in there, and it supports what David's saying here. Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Did you catch, did you catch what the author just said right there? What he's saying is when you're facing sorrows and you're tempted to think that something other than God or which has been provided by God will somehow ease your pain and dissatisfaction, be reminded in that moment that Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, you may lose everything, but you will never lose Jesus. Sometimes it takes coming to a place where we have nothing in life but Jesus to realize all we need in life is Jesus. When sorrows roll, I see billows. Don't look to the world to find relief. Get alone with God. Open up his word. 
Stay there as long as you can or as long as you have to. Read it. Pray over it. He dwells inside of you. He rewards those who by faith seek and pursue after him. Watch and see if when you're doing this, you don't find yourself just like David saying, the lines have fallen for me in good places. And somehow, as the hymn writer says, the things of the world grow strangely dim. It's a lot easier to talk about than do. So I'm going to give you a little application piece that I've been trying lately. All right, so y'all can practice with me on this. Luke chapter 11, Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, you being evil, which you got to appreciate Jesus is just, you being evil, knowing how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Spirit if you ask for him? Let me ask you a question. Last time... You were tempted to go after things of the world. Or any time, did you stop, get on your knees and open the word and say, Lord, you, you said you're a good father and you love us. And that you'll give this spirit if we ask. God, I'm asking you to pour out this spirit. And you've said that we'll never thirst if we drink of this unending water. So here's, here's what I'm trying. So y'all try it with me. Because I face this a long time like we all do, especially in a culture right now of post-COVID where there are a lot of prices are high. Everything's just around us. People are just going after possessions nonstop. And possessions in and of themselves aren't wrong, especially if it's something God's leading you to. And you have to follow the Spirit in that. But in that moment when you know it's not that, it's that you're trying to satisfy your soul apart from God, join, join me in this and pray desperately, Father, you're a good father. Will you give me your spirit? Will you satisfy my soul amidst this so that I don't go after broken cisterns? Number three, God's word preserves us through uncertainty by providing confidence in his presence. So God's word preserves us through uncertainty by providing confidence in his presence. Verses seven and eight, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. There it is, because he is at my right hand. Now the one who is seated at the right hand is at his right hand. I shall not be shaken. What, one of, I have three daughters. And um, so y'all pray desperately for me as well. And in that matter, they're a blessing, but they've got me wrapped around their finger. Um, one of them was born with a heart complication and had open heart surgery when she was an infant and um, has to go um, to a pediatric cardiologist regularly to be checked up and monitored to see when the next potential surgery or treatment method would come along. Um, I remember the first time I went to that checkup with her, we walked in, Sacred Heart, and uh, she laid down on the exam table. And you're sitting there and you watch your daughter, and they just wire after wire after wire just keeps coming out. I mean, you lose count of the wires that are attached to your child and the blood they're taking. I mean, you're just sitting there and you're watching, and you're like, oh, God. And the nurse looks at her and says, okay, I need you to be as still as you can now. We're about to start the test, and you can't move. 
And I could tell she was scared. She said, would it be hard if I hold my dad's hand? Sure. So I gripped her hand, and I tried to just hold it together as strong as I could. And I didn't grip it too tight, but I held it firm to let her know, hey, I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. She just looked at me the whole time. I think she was less afraid than I was. (laughs) David says, I have set the Lord always before me, meaning I've put God's word before me. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word. But God's not only before him. He's his counsel when he's uncertain as to what to do. And the night when he wakes, even the word written upon his heart is still speaking to him. In those moments of uncertainty, and we are tempted with great fear in those moments. Anyone who denies that, I would love to have a conversation and learn more from you. But there is nothing sweeter than hearing from the Lord from his word in those moments. Reminding you to fear not, be not dismayed. It's not of an analogy like me holding my daughter's hand. It it is the exact same thing. It's him grasping your right hand. Now the power of God is there to go before you. You have no reason to be afraid. Isaiah 41, 13 says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I will help you. You're going through uncertainty. There are going to be plenty of people that want to give you advice on what to do. Marriage, jobs, troubles at work, whatever. And and that can be great. Take counsel. But before you take counsel from man, go to God. Let it be the one that instructs your heart. Let his word go before you and let him grasp hold of your right hand. And then as he roots out fear and replaces it with confidence and you gather in other advice that you filter through the word, you walk according to God's will and he preserves you and says, don't be dismayed. Don't worry. I'm with you. You're mine. And by the way, that very hand that he holds in your right hand has got a hole in it the size of a nail. that he chose to keep even in his resurrected body. And one day we'll see it and be reminded this God loves us. Right hand of God, all authority in heaven and earth, grabs your right hand and says, don't be dismayed. We need to hear that because I'll be afraid again tomorrow. And guess what? I need to go back to the word to hear it again. Last, and we'll, we'll close this out. So, God's word preserves us through death by providing life in his presence. Last three verses. Therefore, David writes, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Now, we don't have to guess the meaning of what this, what he's saying here. We can, for all of you divinity students, we can go straight into Peter's sermon and just let Scripture interpret Scripture. And you've got it in your notes from Acts chapter 2 there. Just an excerpt from verses 29 to 33. Peter preaching at Pentecost says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. How amazing is that? At Psalm chapter 16, he's speaking about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus whom God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing now. You find it interesting, David, at the end of the Psalm 16, is like, you won't abandon my soul, I, I won't see corruption. And then Peter comes in and says, oh, by the way, he died, I can take you to his graveside if you, if you want me to. So was David wrong? And Peter right? Or were they both? What's, yes. Here's the beauty of it once. Think about salvation, glorification. We're talking about the middle, the preservation. When he had already been satisfied in moments of weakness by the refuge of God, when he had already known what it meant to overcome sorrows by finding satisfaction in the presence of God, when he knew when he was dismayed and the very presence of God brought confidence in his life, death was no longer a concern anymore because he was prophesying. He didn't fully understand it, but there's coming one who's going to sit on my throne after me, and guess what? His kingdom's going to last forever. He's going to reign. I'm going to die, but he's going to reign. Because he lives, I'm going to live. And I assure you right now, you can put, go to the tomb of David, and yes, his body's decayed, but I assure you, you will not find David there. You will find him enjoying pleasures forevermore at the right hand of our Father. John Piper said, being infinite, Jesus is inexhaustibly interesting. Therefore, it is impossible for God to be boring. As the source of every good pleasure, he himself is eternally pleasing. There's some people, Christians, maybe even you in this room, you think about going to heaven, you think, gosh, it's just going to be boring. We're going to be floating on clouds and singing. Pleasures forevermore, unending pleasures. Think about the best day you've ever had on earth. All right, now think of this about eternity, especially in the new heavens and the new earth. Every day will be better than, joyful than the day before because you will never exhaust all of the pleasures that are being experienced in Jesus Christ. You will never get to a point where you know everything about God because that would make you it's inexhaustible. Pleasures forevermore. That, that's our future, brothers and sisters. If I don't make it through the night, if I die tonight, you can go to my grave, like Peter said about David. But not anything because of me, because I have no good apart from God, but because of his grace, he has saved me. I will be enjoying those pleasures forevermore. 
And one day, he's going to open the clouds back up and raise our bodies to new bodies. And he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And you just think you get excited and worshiping in spirit and truth in here on a good Sunday. You wait till that day. But I want to address this before I close. The reality is some of you here tonight may be that God ordained you to be here tonight, may share with many throughout history from generation to generation who have said, I've heard all about this resurrection of Jesus. He's coming back and it's not ever happened. I'm not sure I believe in it. To that, Peter says, just remember the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. At least not the way we count slowness. His delay is patience towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance and faith and know what it is for God's word to preserve you in trials, filling you with the joy of his presence. Father, thank you for your people gathered here uh, this afternoon. Thank you for the privilege to just worship together. Thank you for a people who love your holiness, so much so that when they lead to sing, they take off their shoes. Thank you for brothers who are pricked in their heart over sin that the world would say is no big deal, but it burdens them because they love you and they don't want to burden anything or any separation between you and them. So, Father, create in us a clean heart tonight, God. Renew that right spirit within us as we come to this table that we might experience the pleasures of your presence. And as we return to our seats, that we might sing and exult with those who call upon your name and seek refuge in you. We ask these things for the sake of your name, Jesus Christ, and under your glory, Father. Amen.